welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 187, Paul. Hello, I'm so glad you're here. All right, we are ending the book of Acts. I hope that you feel like you have gotten to know Paul. For me, I feel like as I read the book of Acts, especially as I read it divided up into four weeks, I kind of lose track of the chronology of it all and exactly what happened four weeks ago when I read that last thing. And we are about to enter into a couple of months of reading letters written by Paul to the saints. And while I am studying those letters written by Paul to the saints, I feel like I want to have a pretty good comprehension about the overarching story of who Paul is and what he did during his ministry that we have recorded. So that's what I'm going to do. And if you feel like you already have a good handle on this, this might be kind of repetitive for you. Um, I didn't feel like I had a great handle. If somebody asked me to tell the story of Paul, I would have been able to recite some of the stories, but I wouldn't have known what order they were in or really a lot of the specifics. And I felt like some of the stories were a little hard to follow. And so I would kind of zone in on some principles that were that were in the scriptures and what they taught, but I didn't feel like I ever got a really good grasp on what exactly happened. So that is what we are going to do today in preparation for the upcoming months when we read the words of Paul so that we understand the context. The story of Paul is the story of a man who loved the Lord, and he was doing his best to serve as he had been called after a life of extreme wickedness and mostly misguidance. Paul is often credited as being one of the most important figures since Jesus Christ as he helped establish Christianity as a separate religion from Judaism, as his missions were primarily to the Gentiles, and he taught that the Gentiles didn't have to observe Jewish law, which was a cause of much of the contention that permeated Paul's life. The Bible Dictionary says, Paul went on three major missionary journeys and wrote many letters to the saints. Fourteen of these letters form a part of the New Testament today. And those are the letters that we're going to be studying in the upcoming months. In his old life, he was known as Saul. And later, after his conversion, he was renamed to Paul. I find the biblical tradition of people receiving new names from the Lord so beautiful Abram became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah, Jacob became Israel, Solomon became Jedediah, Simon becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul. In Revelations 19.12, we learn that when the Lord comes again, he will have a new name that no man has known but himself. And when we go to the temple, we receive a new name that we are told to remember. These new names symbolize a new life in Christ. Saul played a key role in persecuting the saints and even watched and aided in the condemnation and martyrdom of the Apostle Stephen. However, Delbert L. Stapley said this, Saul was not motivated by malice, but by the belief that he was working against an enemy of his Jewish faith. Now, this makes me think about the, I mean, obviously it's wicked to persecute and kill people, but it makes me kind of, I don't I don't want to say give him a break a little bit, but that's kind of what happened here, Right. He was a very committed member of the Jewish community. He was a Pharisee, and he was doing what he felt was right, right? And I wonder if his purity of heart, even though it was extremely misguided, is one of the reasons that the Lord chose him. 
Clearly, he was somebody who, when he had a passion for what he thought was right, he went after it. And we see that manifest as he is converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul has quite a conversion story, a pretty unique one. Most people don't get a chance to be converted in this way on the road to Damascus, starting in verse three in chapter nine of the book of Acts. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat or drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire of the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will shew him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. After this, Paul immediately starts preaching of Jesus Christ in the synagogues. He was keenly aware of the danger, as he had been the one killing people for doing the very same thing recently. But he was strengthened and encouraged through the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Whenever I read accounts like this where people are putting themselves in physical danger for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I always wonder, where does that level of bravery come from? And I think that is answered here. It does not come from ourselves. It only comes from the strength, the added strength that the Lord can give us. So after he started preaching in the synagogues, of course, the Jews tried to kill him. But the apostles in the city and disciples in the city knew about it, and they lowered him over the wall of the city in a basket so that he could escape. He then met with the other disciples who were afraid of him, understandably, not believing that he was really a follower of Jesus Christ because they knew his history. And yet the other apostles and disciples who had witnessed what he had been doing as he preached witnessed his change of heart and his willingness to put himself in danger for the Lord. So he was accepted by the apostles and the disciples. And I can't imagine that that's, that's a, you know, here in scripture, we read about it happening really quickly, but I can imagine that there were some heated feelings as they processed their feelings about Paul becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
or I guess I should say Saul, because at that point, I don't know when his name was changed. We just know in the next chapter, he starts getting referred to as Paul. At this point, we have recorded that Peter had a vision that would change the course of Paul's life. He had a vision revealing that the gospel could be preached to the Gentiles. Previous to this, this was not the case, as crazy as it sounds to us. So Saul, now referred to as Paul, was called on his first mission with his companion Barnabas. During this mission, he cursed what was referred to as a sorcerer who was trying to keep someone from the truth with blindness. He bore bold testimony of the history. I love this speech that he gives or testimony that he gives of the history of the Jewish people and how all of that history was leading to the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many believed, and yet they were still pushed out of the city. But even when that happened, it says that he was filled with joy and the Holy Ghost, and Paul and the apostles continued on their way to preach. Paul passed by a crippled man and perceived that he had the faith to be healed. I love how that is described. It doesn't say that the crippled man asked to be healed. He just walked by him and perceived that he had the faith to be healed. In a loud voice, he said, stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked, at which point people decided that they were gods and wanted to make a sacrifice to them. Paul and Barnabas frantically run to the people and correct them, saying, sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. But everything there wasn't positive attention. There were some that were angry and stoned Paul to the point where they thought that he was dead. But he wasn't, and he continued on, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Is that another necessary part of how Paul was able to endure and and continue on the way that he did, is that he acknowledged that we must go through much tribulation in order to enter into the kingdom of God. He acknowledged and accepted that as part of the plan. Now, I know that's much harder in practice than just to say, but it's something that I'm thinking about as I think about how can I have this level of bravery and fortitude and endure to the end through great tribulation, as he says here. So coming back to the body of the church, Paul and Barnabas rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And it says that they there abode a long time with the disciples. Eventually, they hear about some significant doctrinal disputations among the members of the church, and he traveled with Peter to go correct what was being taught. He had a significant fight with his mission companion, Barnabas, significant enough that they went their separate ways, and Paul chose a new mission companion, Silas. And as a side note, Barnabas also chose, or I don't know if he chose it, but he got a new mission companion as well and continued on his way to go serve a mission. So God took what sounded like a contentious situation and he multiplied it. He created two sets of missionary companions. At this point, he and Silas wanted to go spread the gospel in Asia, but that was forbidden by the Spirit. He was then shown a vision where he saw a Macedonian man calling to him, asking for help. So he and Silas journeyed to go on Paul's second mission to Macedonia and eventually ran into trouble because of what they were teaching. And what people were upset about is that it wasn't lawful for Roman citizens to worship a god that was not an approved god of the Roman Empire. So they were beaten and thrown into prison to be held in the stocks. And as they sat, and I I love this visual, 
I'm sure they were miserable and uncomfortable in those stocks, but they sang. They sang praises to God and the prisoners heard them. And as they sang, the foundation of the prison shook and all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loose. And when the warden of the prison woke, he saw what had happened and he thought that everyone must have escaped and he was about to kill himself when Paul cried out saying, don't do that. We're all still here. And the warden came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. They then bore bold testimony of Jesus Christ and and the jailer and all of his family were baptized. The crime that they had committed only warranted one night of imprisonment. So in the morning, the magistrates told them that they could leave, but they must leave the city. Paul and Silas refused because the magistrates had failed to ask about their citizenship. This punishment of jail time for this crime was intended for foreigners, not Roman citizens. The magistrates were afraid when they found out that they were Romans, so they came in personally and got them out of prison, where they then went to go stay in the home of a recent convert in the city named Lydia. They continued on preaching, despite constant consequence for their discipleship. Paul continues, onto a synagogue in Thessalonia. There he talks with the Jews about the scriptures and that Jesus Christ was the Messiah promised, is the Messiah promised. Some people liked it and accepted it, but of course, as it usually is the case, others didn't. And I love what they have to say as they are trying to rile people up. It says, they that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Can't you just imagine these these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees or Sadducees? I'm actually not sure in this portion of the story what um, sect it was. But can you imagine them just feeling as though these Christians were turning the world upside down? I just think that's such a perfect description of what it must have felt like to them. They testify that Paul and Silas are saying that there is only one king, only Jesus Christ, which is contrary to the decree of Caesar. Because of all the things that these these men were saying, they knew that there was trouble, so they left the city by night. But of course, they didn't stop. They kept going. They came to Berea and went to a synagogue to preach again. It says that there the people were more noble and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. But the upset Jews from the last town, Thessalonia, oh, oops, you know what I'm realizing? I'm saying that wrong. Thessalonica. Lonisa. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to call it Thessalonica. Heard that they were preaching successfully in Berea and came to stir up the people. So Paul and Silas escape to Athens, and it's there that Paul's spirit is stirred when he sees that the entire city has given into idolatry. So of course he goes to preach of Jesus Christ. It says that the Athenians spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Doesn't that sound familiar? I feel like that can pretty perfectly describe our society. He bears a beautiful testimony to them, saying, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of the heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, 
and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Don't you love that scripture? I'm going to read that again. And they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone or graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. But after this, Paul left the city, and some people followed him. He came to Corinth. For the beginning of his third recorded mission, he stayed with a Jewish man and his wife who had been expelled from Rome. They were tent makers, which that's also in a previous previous life, also what Saul did. He continues to go to the synagogues testifying that Jesus is Christ. But when the Jews blaspheme and reject, he says, your blood will be on your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go unto the Gentiles. So this is where he goes to officially goes to the Gentiles. He then goes to the Corinthians, and the Lord tells him in a vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And he stays there for a year and a half preaching. But then inevitably he was arrested again because some Jews who conspired against him, and they brought him to the judgment seat. But the deputy, Gallio, essentially tells the people that he doesn't feel like what Paul is being accused of is something that he needs to concern himself with. And that that's their business to figure out as Jews. Basically, he's saying, go away, don't bother me with this. He next goes to Ephesus, where he heads again into a synagogue to talk about the scriptures. It's interesting to think that he follows the same pattern that the Savior did. The Savior usually spoke in synagogues until the leaders drove him out. And Paul follows this similar pattern. This time, they want him to stay longer, but he has a commitment in Jerusalem, a feast, which is likely the Passover. He next goes to the upper coast of Ephesus, where he finds people that believe in the gospel, but yet had not received the Holy Ghost. They hadn't even heard of the Holy Ghost. They said that they had been baptized with the baptism of John, believing that a Savior was to come. So Paul baptized them in the name of Jesus Christ and confers upon them the gift of the Holy Ghost, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. He then spoke in a synagogue for three months, and it says that he was there disputing and persuading of the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when some hearts were hardened, he separated the disciples, those who had believed, and continued to instruct them for two years. It says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. People's testimonies of the power of the name of Jesus Christ was magnified because of these miracles and because of the power in his name. Then it talks about some silversmiths who were upset because a lot of the way that they made their money was making statues of the goddess Diana, and yet Paul was preaching that it was wrong to worship an idol. They said that not only is our occupation in danger, but the great goddess Diana's name was being blasphemed. They stirred up the people and then caught Paul's companions Gaius and, okay, let's see if I can figure out this name, Aristarchus. 
Aristarchus. I don't have to say that name again, so that's what we're going to go with. And brought them to a great theater, and Paul really wanted to go because he was worried about his friends. But the disciples wouldn't let them. They knew it would be too dangerous. The theater was chaotic. Lots of people didn't even know why they were there. And a Jewish man named Alexander was called forward to defend the teachings of his people. But when the people realized that he was Jewish, they yelled at him for two hours saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, so that he couldn't say anything, or at least they couldn't hear him. And eventually the town clerk got up and basically said, We know that we worship Diana here in this town. If these silversmiths have an issue, they need to bring it up in a court of law. But this assembly is getting out of hand, and we are all going to be in trouble if we don't calm down and disperse. So they did. After this scary encounter, Gaius, oh dang it, I am going to have to say the name again, Aristarchus, were were released and Paul came to them and embraced them. He then left to preach in other parts. He eventually makes his way to Troas. There he has a sacrament service with disciples where he spoke until midnight and a young man named Eutychus dies and during while he's speaking. And Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. So he brings him back from the dead. After some traveling, he calls the elders of the church to him and he says a touching goodbye to them. And I'm just going to read a bunch of it because I think it's so beautiful. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have shewed you and have taught you publicly from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day, that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch, and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have shewed unto you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. 
He then travels and is warned through the Spirit by disciples that he should not go to Jerusalem. And then later again, warned by a man named Agabus, saying, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. The people with him begged him not to go to Jerusalem, but they couldn't persuade him, and said, The will of the Lord be done. He meets with the elders and tell them of his success among the Gentiles, and they all rejoice. Then, as he is seen in the temple, there's an uproar from the people, saying that he has brought in an Ephesian to the temple, polluting it, which is against Jewish law. Remember that even though he has been preaching to the Gentiles all these years, this is generally not widely accepted. Previous to Jesus, only the Jews were taught the gospel. The people take Paul out of the temple, and the local Roman authority is told that there is an uproar. As the Romans come, the people run away, and they stop mid-beating of Paul. The chief captain, not knowing what was going on, he commanded Paul to be chained up, and he demanded to know who he was and what was happening. The people that were left there couldn't agree on one reason that Paul was being treated this way, so Paul was taken away to the castle. As he's taken away, people start following, calling, away with him. Paul speaks with the chief captain and asks him if he speaks Greek, and then Paul tells him who he is and requests to speak to the people. And the chief captain agrees, and Paul stands on the stairs to address the group that has followed, and he gets them to be quiet by holding up his hand. He tells them his story, that he persecuted the Jews, he brought them to death, and then was shown a vision by the Lord, that he was asked by the Lord himself, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That he was then blinded and had to be led into Damascus, that Ananias then visited him, telling him that he had been chosen by God and restored his sight, that he was then called to be baptized and preach the gospel. Then he said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. The people in the crowd seem unfazed by his story, and they say, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes, they threw dust in the air. The Romans then take him to be scourged, but Paul asks, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? Essentially saying, Careful, I am a Roman citizen, and I am entitled to a trial and rights. They were then afraid because they had already treated him in ways that was not lawful for a Roman citizen, and they knew that they could be in trouble. They loosed Paul from his bands and brought him before the chief priests and council. So at this point, I, I keep wondering, why do they keep mistaking him for just a Jew and not a Roman citizen? They, it doesn't even seem like they ask about it. They just go ahead and assume. So Paul's mother was a Jew but his father was a Roman citizen, thus granting Paul Roman citizenship. So he pleads his case before the council, saying that he has a clean conscience. And the high priest, Ananias commands anyone who was near him to smite Paul in the mouth. Paul then accuses the high priest, saying, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. Paul perceives that some of the people gathered are Pharisees and some are Sadducees who famously disagree with each other about the death and about death and resurrection. He says to the Pharisees, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am called in question, which then starts a fight between the Pharisees and the Sadducees during this proceeding and the Pharisees, because Paul proclaimed to believe in the resurrection, take his side and say that they find no fault in him. 
It gets so tense that the chief captain commands that Paul be brought into the castle so that they don't tear Paul to pieces. And it says, In the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. During the night, about 40 Jews, the Sanhedrin, vowed to neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. They went to the chief priests and told them what they were doing and asked the chief priests to request that Paul be brought down to them so that they could ask him more questions. But really, they just wanted to have the opportunity to kill him. Paul, through his sister's son, was then told of this conspiracy while in the castle, and he gets the centurion to allow this young man to go to the chief captain and tell him what was going on. So this young man delivers his message, and the chief, cap- chief captain let him go, telling him to tell no one about this conspiracy. The chief captain then gathers a small army of men to escort Paul back on horseback to Felix the governor. He sends a letter with him, and he essentially lays out the situation, telling the governor that nothing Paul, a Roman citizen, has done warrants death or imprisonment, and that he has sent him to him in order to save his life. The governor keeps Paul in his custody and commands that he is kept in Herod's judgment hall. After five days, the high priest that originally accused him came, along with an orator who informed Herod of their perception of Paul's crimes. And I believe an orator also is another word for a a lawyer. This man speaks very eloquently and convincingly of the dangers of Paul. And I love his speech because it's just, it's just funny and it kind of brings personality. So I'm going to, I'm going to read it. Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, so he's flattering this um, this governor. Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, whom we took, and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us, and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things, whereof we accused him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Can't you just imagine the embarrassing arrogance of this guy? Just, I just think that speech is hilarious. So Paul responds to Felix, who is the governor. He says, I've only been in Jerusalem for 12 days. I haven't had enough time to cause any trouble. I haven't been arguing with anyone and they can't prove any of these things that they're saying against me. But he says, I do confess that a lot of what they hear through hearsay is true. He ignores a lot of their surface charges, and then he gets to the heart of the matter, which is the resurrection. He says, So worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself, to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee, and object if they had aught against me. He's pointing out that the people who originally even accused him weren't even there. Or else let these same hearsay, if they have found evil 
any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. Felix is relatively unfazed. He is not interested in their doctrinal argument. He tells them he's going to wait for the tribune and then puts Paul under a pretty loose house arrest, but the tribune then doesn't arrive. So Felix would rather keep the peace with the Sanhedrin. So he keeps Paul in custody until he is relieved of his duty two years later by Porcius Festus. Excited by this new leader in charge of Paul's fate, the Sanhedrin wants another shot at Paul. Festus invites them to Caesarea, where they rehash their allegation. Paul restates his defense that he is frustrated by the situation and requests as a Roman citizen to go to Caesar in Rome, knowing that the Lord, if you'll remember um, a little bit ago, has promised him that he will make it there anyway. So he has faith that he's going to end up in Rome anyway. As a Roman citizen, Festus has no choice but to honor his request. Before he is sent to Rome to see Caesar, he is also brought under audience of King Agrippa, which very coolly, is coolly a word, fulfills a prophecy given to Ananias. And if you'll remember, that's at the very beginning of Paul's story when when the disciple came to lay his hands on Paul to make him not blind anymore. That was one of the things that the Lord told Ananias is that he would preach and bear testimony in front of a king. So he retells his story to King Agrippa, after which King Agrippa says to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. The king and the council around him spoke after Paul was escorted out and said, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa to Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. So he's basically saying, I probably would have just let him go right now, but he has to go to Caesar because he's requested that. So off on a long journey to Rome, he goes, and I really mean long. During one leg of the journey, he warns the centurion that they should stop their journey for winter because it was going to result in being a very dangerous journey. But ultimately, the centurion listened to the owner of the ship over Paul, which of course ends badly for the centurion and all those on board. There were strong winds that prevent them from landing in Phoenix, and they head out into open water. The crew manages to pull up the lifeboats before they flood and sink, and then they use ropes to support the hull of the ship. Still off course, they run into sandbars near Libya. Knowing that they won't be able to swim to shore, they throw out a lot of the load that the boat is carrying. And at this point, Paul gently reminds them that he told them this would happen. He reassures them that even though the the ship and cargo is going to be lost, that no one will die because God told him that he must be delivered to Caesar. However, the ship is going to crash onto an island. When they get close to land, it's too dark to see. So the sailors lower the lifeboats and plan to abandon the passengers, including the soldiers. Paul warns the soldiers and the soldiers cut the ropes to the lifeboats to prevent this from happening. At this point, it talks about how it's been 14 days since anyone has eaten. So Paul encourages everyone to eat. He breaks bread and passes it out to everyone, which it says was about 376 people. And then they throw the remaining wheat out of the ship to make it lighter. The sailors see a sandy shore and try to reach it, but they get stuck on the reef. The soldiers decide to kill all the prisoners so that they can't jump out and then escape, but the centurion stops them in order to save Paul. He tells them that they should just all jump out of the ship and try to get to land. They all land safely on the shore, just as Paul had prophesied. The island that they landed on was called Melita, and they were received kindly by the people because it was cold and rainy. 
Paul was gathering firewood and was bitten by a venomous snake, and the people on the island saw the viper hanging from his hand and said, because they knew he was a prisoner, that he must be a murderer because he was saved from the sea, and yet still God sought vengeance on him. Paul pulls and shakes off the snake, and miraculously, he doesn't get sick at all. And the people are amazed and decide instead that he is a god. The primary leader on the island's name was Publius, and his father was sick and Paul healed him. And the fame of that was spread and many people came to be healed of Paul. The people of the island treated them well, and because of Paul, they loved them and sent them away with the provisions that they needed in order to get back to Rome. So as they leave and get close to Rome, some of Paul's brethren hear that he is traveling in that direction and are finally able to meet with him. And because of that meeting, Paul is so thankful to God and gathered his courage. When they got to Rome, the other prisoners were delivered to the captain of the guard, but clearly Paul is well-loved and he goes to the home of the centurion that he's been traveling with. After three days, Paul appeals to the chief of the Jews and he tells them that there is no lawful reason that Rome is going to sentence him to anything as a Roman citizen. The Jews there in Rome say that they haven't really heard anything about Paul, and they want to know more about what he thinks. So he preaches to them of Jesus Christ and the resurrection, and some believe and some do not. And when they can't agree, they leave, and Paul testifies of the prophet Isaiah's words, which said, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their ears and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed, and they had great reasoning among themselves. So there in Rome, he is surprisingly able to, for two years, live in a house and preach the gospel to anyone who came to him. In Rome, he seems to be freer than he has been in years. It says he was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, concludes Paul's story here, and we get more information through Paul's letters in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Historically, we know that Paul is able to leave Rome after his two years and go do more missionary work, but then it is known that Paul was then beheaded around 65 AD in Rome. Okay, so the reason that I wanted to go through the story of Paul, like I said, is because this is what we're going to be reading for the next few months. And Paul is widely considered to be one of the most influential, important figures in the history of Christianity, often put second in line to Jesus Christ. And his teachings are incredible. So many of the scriptures that you would recognize from the New Testament, so much truth came from Jesus Christ through the dedication and unashamed example and testimony and teachings of Paul. Some of my favorite scriptures came from the Holy Ghost working through Paul. He said things like, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Romans 1.16 And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Romans 8, 14, 16 through 17 and 28. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. 2 Timothy chapter 1, 6 through 7. 
He defined faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, in Hebrews 11, chapter 1. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ, Philippians 4, 7. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, Ephesians 5, 25. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Let us therefore not judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Romans fourteen thirteen. I could keep going with more scriptures that you would likely recognize. The Lord told that first disciple about Paul's future, for I will shew him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul's story is a story of self-sacrifice. He left his old life and completely changed it for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How did Paul survive such a trying life? It's not any different than how we can survive our own trying lives. Paul survived because he had a covenant relationship with God. That covenant relationship gives us power. President Nelson said, Dear brothers and sisters, I grieve for those who leave the church because they feel membership requires too much of them. They have not yet discovered that making and keeping covenants actually makes life easier. Each person who makes covenants in baptismal fonts and in temples and keeps them has increased access to the power of Jesus Christ. Please ponder that stunning truth. The reward for keeping covenants with God is heavenly power, power that strengthens us to withstand our trials, temptations, and heartaches better. This power eases our way. Those who live the higher laws of Jesus Christ have access to his higher power. Thus, covenant keepers are entitled to a special kind of rest that comes to them through their covenantal relationship with God. Before the Savior submitted himself to the agony of Gethsemane and Calvary, he declared to his apostles, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Subsequently, Jesus entreated each of us to do the same when he said, I will that ye should overcome the world. Dear brothers and sisters, my message to you today is that because Jesus Christ overcame this fallen world and because he atoned for each of us, you too can overcome this sin-saturated, self-centered, often exhausting world. Because the Savior, through his infinite atonement, redeemed each of us from weakness, mistakes, and sin, and because he experienced every pain, worry, and burden that you have ever had, then, as you truly repent and seek his help, you can rise above this present precarious world. You can overcome the spiritually and emotionally exhausting plagues of the world, including arrogance, pride, anger, immorality, hatred, greed, jealousy, and fear. Despite the distractions and distortions that swirl around us, you can find true rest, meaning relief and peace, even amid your most vexing problems. This important truth prompts three fundamental questions. First, what does it mean to overcome the world? Second, how do we do it? And third, how does overcoming the world bless our lives? What does it mean to overcome the world? It means overcoming the temptation to care more about the things of this world than the things of God. It means trusting the doctrine of Christ more than the philosophies of men. It means delighting in truth, denouncing deception, and becoming humble followers of Christ. It means choosing to refrain from anything that drives the Spirit away. It means being willing to give away even our favorite sins. 
Now, overcoming the world certainly does not mean becoming perfect in this life, nor does it mean that your problems will magically evaporate, because they won't. And it does not mean that you won't still make mistakes. But overcoming the world does mean that your resistance to sin will increase. Your heart will soften as your faith in Jesus Christ increases. Overcoming the world means growing to love God and His beloved Son more than you love anything else. Now, you may be thinking, this sounds a lot more like hard spiritual work than rest. But here is the grand truth. While the world insists that power, possessions, popularity, and pleasures of the flesh bring happiness, they do not. They cannot. What they do produce is nothing but a hollow substitute for the blessed and happy state of those who keep the commandments of God. The truth is that it is much more exhausting to seek happiness where you can never find it. However, when you yoke yourself to Jesus Christ and do the spiritual work required to overcome the world, He, and He alone, does have the power to lift you above the pull of the world. Now, how does overcoming the world bless our lives? The answer is clear. Entering into a covenant relationship with God binds us to Him in a way that makes everything about life easier. Please do not misunderstand me. I did not say that making covenants makes life easy. In fact, expect opposition, because the adversary does not want you to discover the power of Jesus Christ. But yoking yourself with the Savior means you have access to His strength and redeeming power. I reaffirm a profound teaching of President Ezra Taft Benson. Men and women who turn their lives over to God will discover that He can make a lot more out of their lives than they can. He will deepen their joys, expand their vision, quicken their minds, lift their spirits, multiply their blessings, increase their opportunities, comfort their souls, raise up friends, and pour out peace. The reason that this quote, well, really, I read you like half the talk, but the reason that this feels so relevant to me is Paul did not accomplish all that he accomplished in life through his own power. He accomplished it because he was yoked with Jesus Christ. And the same applies to you. You may not be known as a great figure in the history of Christianity, where everyone knows your name, but what you are doing is important, and what you are doing is hard. In that way, you are not dissimilar from Paul. I'm sure Paul often remembered what Jesus said when he said, With God, all things are possible. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.